Welcome to the second episode of Make This Do That, a podcast about asking questions and solving problems for artists and makers. My name is Michael Lorsung. I am an artist, tinkerer, and experimenter. I started this podcast because I realized that I spend a good bit of time talking to other folks about questions that they have about making. If you have a project, a question, or a problem that you would like to bring to the podcast, email podcast at makethisdothat.org. Today I am joined in the studio by my co-host Carter Hopkins. Carter is a furniture maker and woodworker. He received his MFA in furniture design from the Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. He currently maintains his own studio practice while also running the woodworking program at Glenwood Springs High School in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Carter and I will be talking to Andrew Barger today about the challenges of establishing a functioning woodworking studio on a shoestring budget in a non-traditional space. Andrew is an artist and letterpress printer currently residing in Beacon, New York. His work focuses on critical approaches to the contemporary art market, regionalism, alternative economies, and community engagement. While not working on his own work, Andrew is a pressman for Thornwillow Press and runs a side business doing fine art framing. Welcome, Andrew. Could you start by talking a little bit about your project, what you would like to get out of it, and where you see the current challenges? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, So basically, you know, I moved to uh, Beacon uh, last August, and before I had access to this really nice woodshop facility um, with really nice saws and all the equipment that, you know, I really got used to using um, to make these these frames. Um, and now that I do not have access to this wood shop, um, and I barely have access to a space, um, you know, I would really like to continue to, uh, you know, make frames and, um, you know, have some sort of functioning wood shop. But all that I really have currently is this attic space that has, you know, many problems uh, logistically and, um, you know, also my newest equipment is not like this fancy equipment (laughs) that I got used to, uh, got used to using. So I'm pretty much having to like, it kind of feels like I'm having to relearn how to uh, make frames all over again, which is, has been challenging so far. Sure. And um, I'm going to post some images of the space uh, in the show notes so that people can kind of have a better understanding of what we're talking about. Uh, it's an attic space in a house. So you've got some challenges with, you know, overhead, um, your ceiling, uh, it slopes pretty dramatically in, in certain areas. So your working space is kind of limited, it looks like to the middle of the room. Um, but additionally, you mentioned that uh, it lacks, uh, you know, maybe some proper electrical. Um, right obviously any kind of dust collection. Um, right. And, uh, but you're also just sort of starting from square one. I think this is really where, uh, where maybe Carter's expertise and his experience can, can come in, in, in talking about, uh, how to use the tools that you do have more efficiently, uh, how to maybe, uh, t- start thinking about some, some particular jigs and fixtures that are specific to the processes that you want to do. Cause it sounds like, you know, you're not looking to build a, a dining room table. You're, uh, working on a, a fairly straightforward process of building these frames, but you're doing it in a way that's uh, sort of uh, minimally impactful on the space and also um, uh, requires a minimum of, of, of tools, equipment, uh, and that kind of thing. So I don't know, Carter, if you have any thoughts about that right off the bat. It's good to know, one, the space that you're in, uh, your background, and also uh, what you're making. I mean, I think what you're making really drives uh, how your studio is set up. There's tools of obviously that you'll need and there's 
many more that you don't need. Um, and understanding the process uh, around what you're making will inevitably impact what you spend money on and put into your space. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, what size of things you're making. Um, I know they're frames. So, you know, the biggest frames I probably would end up making probably would not exceed anything over four feet. Um, and I think that that middle space that I have currently, um, you know, I try to position, I have a small table saw up there. Um, and I think I need it positioned in a way that I can uh, rip down larger pieces of wood into smaller pieces of wood. Um, and whereas before, you know, I was using my uh, table saw to cut these miters um, on the table saw that I currently have, it has proven much more difficult <laughs> than it was on a really nice uh, saw stop. Um, so I bought a, uh, a compound miter saw, um, which has worked a little bit better, but, you know, it's really not getting the sort of cuts that I want to get. Um, and then there's also the problem of, uh, of dust, which gets everywhere, <laughs> obviously. Right. And, you know, this, this space that I have, you know, I, I have part of the attic is, you know, free to use, um, but still part of the, the other part of the attic still needs to function as an, as an attic, you know, for me and my partner. So if there's yeah. any way to like not get dust, to completely cover everything, that would be uh that'd be the best. <laughs> right. Well, but also you know. like, I, I feel like I still need to like store stuff, you know, um, store large pieces of, of wood somewhere. Um, and, you know, also like kind of dealing with the elements of, of this attic is tough because, you know, I'm not sure how it will, you know, I've thought about like bringing certain like space ears up there because it's really cold up at the moment. Um, and I'm sure it's going to be really hot uh, in the summertime. And I'm not like 100% sure like if it's like super safe <laughs> to uh, have like space heaters running while like there's dust everywhere or yeah. Yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. Um, you know, <laughs> dust, dust is always going to be, it's a challenge for everybody. It's a challenge in the in the highest end uh, furniture shops and cabinet shops, and it's it's a problem up in an attic. Uh, you're always going to be making it, you know. So I think, like, yeah, dust collection. Your 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 gut feeling there that you gotta you gotta figure that out. I think is a good one. Um, I'm looking at your your studio now, up there, and and you might be surprised to hear this, but I'm actually I'm jealous of the space you have. <laughs> I've being a furniture maker. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in and out of the educational academic setting as well. And, uh, I've, I've left, I've left shops that are really, really well set up and finely tuned. And I've come into some that, that aren't so finely tuned. And what's good about that in the long run is that it, I think it, it helps you inform, you know, Oh, well, crap, I don't have an outfeed table on my table saw. I really miss that. Where when you arrive in such a good setting, you kind of, I think you end up taking things for granted uh, and not, not knowingly, but you know, you, you just get used to how good things are. Um, so yeah, I can see, I'm looking at your, um, looking at your studio now in your space and you've got, like you said, you got the bare bones chop saw and table saw 
And mm -hmm. there's there's a lot you can accomplish with that. If frames, I think if frames is your is your jam and you're you're uh, you know committed to making those frames and making them well, you've got the the ingredients anyway um, in the recipe. I think mostly from what I can see is what you'll be up against is honing that workflow, you know, mm -hmm. holding frames down while you're working on them, uh, proper glue ups, uh, hanging racks, drying racks, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So I think, you know, space management is probably going to be your, your biggest task. Does that sound about right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> so, um, I guess, you know, in, in that regard, uh, you, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording here. We were just kind of looking at your, uh, looking at the photos and the drawing that you sent us and, and all the rest of that. And, um, you, one thing that occurred to, to both of us, I think, uh, and that Carter mentioned specifically was, um, the idea that, you know, what's missing in that space or one of the things that's missing in that space potentially. And I think we should get back to the dust, uh, discussion in a little bit, cause I think that's a, a, a larger separate issue. Um, but just from a nuts and bolts, how do I get these things made and how do I do it in a way that feels like I'm not sort of constantly tripping over myself is, uh, you know, there's no table up there. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, I think that a table that could function in a variety of ways, uh, something that's built at the same height as, uh, as the outfeed on your table saw, um, or slightly lower even if you have to make that, uh, concession would be, uh, a, a useful piece of furniture because you could use it as an outfeed table for what you were talking about earlier when you're working with a larger piece of sheet good or, or stock. Uh, and then you could also move it around for when it's like, okay, it's time to assemble these things. I need to, I need a flat surface to work on, you know, so something really simple, uh, that's built, uh, with, you know, like a truss frame kind of, uh, construction and a, a melamine top, uh, maybe a torsion box melamine top or something like that would be, mm -hmm. uh, ideal. I think for that, I don't know, Carter, if you have any additional thoughts on that. Yeah. So I'm just actually uh, looking at the setup now, uh, I've got a photo in front of me and I wouldn't be surprised if you could, you could really pull off, uh, building these frames and constructing them just on a table saw setup that has an outfeed table to the side, a side feed and an outfeed table around your table saw, uh, working as, working as your work surface up there. Um, especially because you're in an attic and you're, you know, too far to the left and too far to the right. You, you have the concern of, you know, knocking your head or hunching over. Uh, I think it would, might be a, a pretty good workflow for gluing up frames, um, after you've milled them up on, on the table saw. And even to the point of on that side feed table, there could be a, a rising router table in there uh, for doing rabbiting for, for those frames. Uh, so I think, I think the biggest thing that we can see or I can see is that that work table around the table saw. And um, I guess uh, to kind of go back a little bit, I think that's a great idea. Um, and so, Andrew, are you kind of on board with what we're talking about? Do you understand when he's talking about like a side feed table? It's basically and an outfeed table. It would be sort of essentially creating a table that wraps around like on the uh, on the left hand and, and, and behind the saw where the outfeed is. Does that make sense? Um, and so my other thought was, you know, you mentioned sort of having some trouble with your miters that you were trying to cut on the table saw when you initially got it, what, uh, what was the challenge there? What were you running into? So the challenge, um, is 
you know, they just like were not coming out like even whatsoever. And I think, you know, I think part of the problem might be because, you know, initially when I make these frames, it's been, you know, I set up like a data stack and cut that, um, cut that little like lip where the, the plexiglass and the mat and the art would sit. And I cut that first. And then from there I go and make these miter cuts. And I think just not having, you know, I've tried to like stack up some scrap pieces of wood so the, the actual frame piece can rest on something when I put it through uh, the table saw. But it just, I think it's been like pulling a little bit or it's, it just hasn't been working out too well. Sure. So, so it sounds like maybe what you need is, is uh, uh, um, a, a miter sled. Does that sound right, Carter? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm sh- you have experience, it says about three years you've been doing this. And um, right. have you had any experience using sleds and, and jigs and fixtures to make to make these parts? I have never. I've never used any of that, but it sounds like that's absolutely what I need. <laughs> so if I, if I had to describe it... Um, very crudely it's uh you know if you think of a sled there's those two channels on either side of the blade um and what a sled does there's there's two sticks of wood that drop into those channels and on top of that you have a a a piece of substrate an mdf or plywood with a fence behind it and there's all sorts of variations of these these sleds and and jigs that you can set that fence to be 45 permanently you know, it's the type of thing where you, you check it, uh, very, very closely when you glue it up. And that way it's always hanging on the wall for when you need that 45 degree cut, you can count on it. And I think what this would, this would help when you talk about holding work, these, these, these cabinet or, um, job site, job site table saws are, are great. Actually, I have one myself and I, I use it I'd say a couple times a week just for odd jobs, you know, frames just like you're talking about. And um, the downfall of them, I think, is really, as, you, as you've discovered with work holding, the miter gauge that comes with it um, is usually about six inches long, right? It's this kind of wimpy little, wimpy little thing. And although the saw, the table itself is pretty rugged, the miter gauge is usually some kind of plastic and like I said, just a short piece of aluminum on that. So I think investing in a little bit of plywood and and in investigating, you know, some fine woodworking articles or uh, simple Google searches, you could really set yourself up with a sled that would last a long, long time and probably save you a lot of time. I think the miter sled will really um, kind of change your life, uh, especially because, <laughs> you know, once you sort of start to get a collection of these things, I think what Carter's saying is totally true. You know, you can take and, and you can have your sleds all hanging in that eave area that's mm-hmm. otherwise just dead space. And it's like, oh, I got to cut my 45s. Great. Boom. Done. Pull that down, you know, cut a whole bunch of those to size and, and you're you're off to the races. Um and you know the other part about that is too that like getting a uh, getting a chop saw tuned in my experience to be able to reliably cut a forty five degree miter on anything is is really really hard, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just because they just they don't hold hold that tolerance particularly well. I mean it's great if you're cutting a knee brace for uh, for a piece of framing in a house or something, but um, for something that you want tight, uh, the table saw I think is still going to be your go to. 
Um, I mean, I think having that miter stop, there's not never going to be something you regret because for sizing stock roughly and everything else, it's just the quickest way to go. Um, but I think having a, having that sled, um, and I think after, uh, after this, uh, recording, we'll go ahead and I'll, I'll post up some, some links to a couple different diagrams of how you might go about making one of those. And the nice thing is that having a table saw up there already, you've got everything you need to make those, uh, to make those, uh, to make a, a number of these jigs and fixtures that we're going to talk about. Um, and then, uh, including sort of the table, the outfeed tables and, and everything else. Uh, so it's kind of all there. It's just a matter of, I think my biggest challenge oftentimes when I'm starting a project like this is going like, well, I don't even know what it is that I'm trying to do exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I know someone's done it. I know there's a way to do it. Um, and so I think putting names to some of this stuff is probably, going to be, um, the most helpful. (laughs) Um, but in terms of, uh, I guess in terms of dust collection, in terms of sort of, you know, you've got these two separate spaces, you've got, uh, kind of a a working area and then you've got an area that you'd like to keep as storage for, you know, normal household attic related, you know, Christmas trees and whatnot. Uh, and then probably finished frames and, and artwork. Um, you know, I think in that regard, my approach would be sort of two tiered. And, and one of them would be to inv- invest in a, uh, a big roll of like six mil visqueen and literally create a physical barrier between those two spaces. And that's going to help with a lot of it. Um, but the other half of it is the dust that's going to be present in the air from woodworking, which obviously you don't want on the stuff, but probably more importantly, you don't want to be breathing. Right. Um, you know, that's a hazard. And I don't know, maybe Carter, if you've got some thoughts on, on some of the sort of more compact dust collection and, you know, what's effective, what's not, what's your experience with that stuff? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's big, there's, there's a huge variety of dust collection in terms of cabinet shop, uh, cyclones to your simple shop vac with an on off button with an extension cord, you know, you'll find, I think in the next, it's important in the next couple months that you don't, you probably don't just. You, you don't dive in and just say, all right, this is my setup. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and pull the trigger on it, but yet be open-minded to moving things around. Uh, you might find that your table saw works best diagonally in that space. Um, so I, you know, maybe an outfit table stretching wall to wall wouldn't be the best move, but like I said, being open to moving things around for dust collection, uh, it can be, it can be tedious moving around solid, rigid piping 90s and 45s and 22s and a halfs and blast gates and things like that it's a whole it's a whole rabbit hole i from what i'm looking at and and the type of things that you're making which will make dust but not not a whole lot the the biggest thing is that you're not joining and planing um so what you're making is mostly sawdust from the table saw uh I would say a good place to start would just be a simple, simple shop vac, mm-hmm. you know? And, and the, the other, the other thing is that with a larger dust collector, I imagine you're in an attic, so you're going to be lugging uh, a big, big bag of sawdust up and down stairs, uh, with a shop vac, you know, it's you might get 20 or 30 pounds, but you won't be, you won't be breaking your back doing it. So that could be a good, a good quick and cheap start. Mm-hmm. Well, the nice thing too about the shop vac solution is that uh, that it's pretty easy to adapt that to to hook right up to the miter saw, uh, and I know I've used and with pretty, I mean I think they work pretty well. 
those hoods that you can buy for a miter saw, uh, they're typically used on, on kind of job sites and they kind of look like a tent that comes up over the back of the saw helps to contain a lot of that dust. And then if just having a shot back, you know, back there on the outlet of the saw itself will really, um, kind of mitigate a lot of, uh, of what you'd have flying around because of that. Um, and I think the key for this particular workshop configuration is that it's really got to be sort of modular and portable. You have right. to be able to kind of move things around. Um, and so I'd say when you're looking at shop vacs, buy the biggest one that fits in the space mm -hmm. and, and doesn't feel like it takes up too much room. Um, just because you're going to be running it quite a bit and you'll get more life out of it if you buy something with a slightly larger motor that's, uh, that's going to be okay with being on for extended periods of time and that kind of thing. Um, but I think that something like that makes a lot of sense, uh, just given what, what you're thinking about doing and, and, and the way that you kind of want it to operate. Um, you know, I think, I think it's really hard when you're sort of starting out in this position. I think one of the big kind of mental blocks for me is I'm always kind of like, I just want to get to like making the thing. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I don't want to be, I don't want to spend time making an outfeed table and I don't want to do this, but I also know from experience and usually from the experience of, of, of spending a lot of time trying to make something work the wrong way, uh, that spending that time and investing in that stuff, as much as it seems like sort of a time sink, it's, uh, it's really gonna, I think it's going to pay you back in dividends just in terms of your comfort level going up there and going, okay, I need to knock these frames out. I have a process for that. I've got a, I've got a set of tools that I know work. Um, and I can do it in an environment where I'm not completely uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about in terms of, uh, dust collection and, um, but I really don't have any experience with uh, making something like this. I'm not sure like what the learning curve is like, but um, um, I was wondering if y'all had any experience with uh, like downdraft tables. Mm -hmm. And if that's something, you know, with, can I go from like making frames and all of a sudden like, oh yeah, sure. I can make a downdraft table. <laughs> For sanding and finishing right, or right. is that what you're thinking? You know, I think that downdraft tables are great if you have the space for them. Um, but for the time and, and expense that you'd put into making one and the space that it would take up in your shop, I almost think you'd be better off investing in a self-contained uh, orbital sanding system, something like the Fest tool. I don't know what your thoughts on that are, Carter. Yeah, I think I think something that you can kind of tuck away and is on wheels and, and can kind of get pushed up against the wall. Uh, I think, you know, even a dust collector, even the, even the smallest size dust collector, it's kind of a big object, right? I mean, what you have to consider is these, even this, even this toolbox in the corner, it's all takes up, it all takes up footprint. Um, I think dust collection, like I said, I don't think you're making that much dust. Mm -hmm. It's, it always seems like it, um, you know, and off a table saw and a chop saw, I think even a small, just a small vacuum, uh, like Michael said, you, you really just want to get to making the thing. And at least to start, I think a, just a simple vacuum system will do, do you a lot of justice. And what do you think about it in regards to like, you know, the downdraft idea and like sort of like when it comes to sanding and finishing, I mean, you're not going to be cranking out a whole lot of dust, but if you wanted something like that, I mean, I know that like, you know, for a long time, Festool was sort of the only uh, kind of, a game in town when it came to uh like a self-contained system that way have you seen those do you know what i'm talking about andrew no i've never seen those before 
So uh, Festool makes a bunch of different woodworking tools. And for a long time, they've been considered to be probably some of the higher end kind of hand um, power tools. Um, and they make a system that is a, um, it's a HEPA dust extractor. So it extracts quite a bit of dust um, from the sander directly as you're using it. it plugs right into the back of the sander. So instead of having sort of a catch bag on it, you've got a hose that goes to this vacuum system. Um, and I've found that if you're sanding with one of those in an enclosed space, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, um, it's, I think there are some drawbacks to it, uh, just in terms of kind of, well, the first one would be cost. I think the vacuum itself costs you around $600 and the sander is probably going to run you another three, unless you can find a good used deal. Um, the good news is that, um, there are some companies out there. I think DeWalt and Makita are both making their own versions of this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we can put those links up in the show notes so that people can see what we're talking about, but, um, you know, it's an investment, but it's the kind of thing, the nice thing about it is that you're not building a piece of infrastructure that you have to lug around with you. Whereas with a downdraft table of any size, you know, if you're talking about building frames that are up to four feet, suddenly you're talking about having to really have a table that can accommodate at least a four foot long section. And then you have to figure out dust collection. And the thing about downdraft tables in any setting, but especially in woodworking is that when you're putting together something like that in a DIY sense, you want to make sure you're using something like a spark-free motor so that you're not at risk of creating a, an explosion from sawdust. Because um, when you uh, when you aerosolize a small particle of, of wood like that uh, and you add a spark to it, it can um, you can you can actually cause a, a pretty significant explosion and fire. Um, so it may be that, yeah, when you start to kind of add that stuff up, it's like, okay, well, maybe that's, uh, maybe there's an alternative that, yeah, I'm going to have to sink some money into, but you know, if you were to invest in something like the Festool system, the nice thing is that it's all modular and across the Festool ecosystem, you can use one tool to the next with, with, uh, interchangeably a, a lot of the time. So if you bought like a track saw or something like that in the future, you could also hook that up to the dust extractor and it's, you know, it kind of seamlessly integrates that way. It also takes up significantly less space and it's way easier to put in the back of your car. Um, my vote, if I, if that were my space, I would, I don't think a downdraft table would be a priority for me mm-hmm. just because I think there are other things that would be, uh, that would make working up there easier. Uh, but I mean, I think ultimately that's something that you kind of have to figure out uh, for yourself because, you know, we all have our own tastes and it's like, you know, you start working in a space and, and, and building it out and you go, oh, I need one of these. I don't need one of these. I can't tell you, I've been here at Anderson Ranch now for a year and a half, I guess. And I think I've rearranged my studio completely and built new fixtures and tables for it like three or four times. Um, so I think that's something that like, you know, once you kind of build the essentials, once you have like an outfeed table, uh, you'll be able to kind of start going like, okay, I've got this down. What do, what's the next thing? You know, I've got a shop vac that I can hook up to these things. That's great. That works. What's the next thing that I need? Um, and that'll be sort of dictated by uh, the, the problems and the successes that come from, from just working in the space itself. Yeah, I agree. Like that's, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, imagining having to, uh, to learn how to make a downdraft table sounded tricky. <laughs> so thanks for saving me some yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it'll save you some time. And I think, you know, ultimately, like a downdraft table is one of those things where, you know, it's something that I would think about in the very distant future when I have a very large shop and, uh, and, and you know, in the time and space to sort of think about something like that. But I think you can get away with what, you know, with a, a, a kind of a minimum of tools uh, in terms of, of what you'd need to buy. 
Um, you know, and I think between using a sort of hybridized dust collection in the form of, of shop vacs and that kind of thing, and then also a physical barrier, I think that's going to make a huge difference in the amount of dust that you have sort of infiltrating areas that you don't want it to get into. And then of course, just like this sounds dumb and maybe, you know, I hope I'm not talking down to you, but like regular sweeping, (laughs) um, like, you know, if you're not tracking dust all over the place, it can't travel as far. Um, and obviously that's a good thing and, and, and it really doesn't cost you anything. Um, so that's a, a way to think about it as well. Yeah, trying to keep my girlfriend for as long as possible, and I think that's going to happen through uh, <laughs> containing the dust. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, when, especially when you're living and working in an area with somebody else, and when those things start to kind of uh, blend together, I found that that usually causes some discord. <laughs> I can speak to that. <laughs> what do you think about, you know, what I find in, in working and rearranging um, shop space, just like Michael has talked about, is that I find mo- my most useful uh, tool is sometimes is just a nice, nice wall shelf where I know where things are, where I, you know, I, can, I can roll up my orbital sander, roll up the cord real nice and set it on the shelf. And that way, you know, I don't go. I don't go flipping over half-cut pieces of plywood, saying, "Dang, where the where the hell is this thing?" You know, and that, that's what I find most frustrating. And and even in the smallest, uh, you know, quaint shops that I've been in, if it's organized, you know that that really does that really goes a long way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm last time I was up there, I was looking at the at the actual space and you know how the angle of the roof is like cutting off so much good space um i'm trying to think of like different ways or different areas that i can use to to store equipment you know store wood store my tools um because you know the the open space it would be great if i kept that specific for the you know the larger machinery you know especially if uh if an outfit table is in my future you know, and I'm looking at... Yeah, and for working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I'm looking at, like, there's a bunch of, like, insulation that is, like, directly under um, under the slope. Um, and it goes back pretty far. Um, and I guess I was curious if it's, like, if it's a safe idea, if it's a bad idea, or if it's, like, an okay idea to, you know, maybe build, like, a small platform over this insulation that way I could like use that space to put things or if you, I'm not like a, a house builder so I'm not sure if like mm-hmm. that stuff needs like <laughs> you know room to breathe or whatever right well you know the one thing about this attic is that it's all open you know it's open rafters and it looks like a an older structure because I can mm-hmm. see you know exposed exposed boards that are perpendicular to those rafters um so yeah i mean breathing room is good uh you wouldn't want to close it off completely but i think like your i think your your instinct to use that space somehow is a good one Mm -hmm. and even if it's uh you know you just tack up a few knee walls with some two by fours and you throw a sheet of of whatever plywood you got on it uh, it would give you some room to hang stuff you know Mm -hmm. You, you spend 10 or 15 bucks at the hardware store with, with hooks and, and just even screws. And, you know, just 
it gives you that much more organization, that much more wall space and usable wall space. So um, just to, to backtrack slightly, um, uh, the term knee wall might not be familiar to all of our listeners. Um, and But essentially, if you want to explain just briefly what you're talking about. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I get, like I said, or like Michael said, kind of carried away. We throw these terms around, knee walls and, and even, you know, tacking two by fours together. But um, yeah, I think when you said a platform, uh, I think in a shop, I'm very careful about uh, platform flat surfaces because they end up filling up with stuff. Um, so I would think about perhaps a, a, a knee wall, like, like Michael was saying, to, for me to talk about that, that saying a little bit. Uh, it's just about, you know, uh, hip height. I'd say where that insulation starts in your attic, if it's 30 inches or 32 inches. Um, just a few two by fours that run uh, uh, perpendicular to the floor and allow you to tack up a piece of plywood. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think Andrew, what you were saying when you uh, were inquiring about like a platform, were you just talking about sort of laying, like laying sheet down over the insulation that's between the joists on the floor that's exposed underneath the eaves? Right. Yeah. Or, you know, even, you know, building, you know, putting a couple pieces down. So it's not just like laying on top, but more like resting on Absolutely. two pieces mm-hmm. of wood. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would have, I mean, I wouldn't think twice about even just going like, I'm going to take one side of this attic and I'm going to sheet in all of that insulation. Mm-hmm. Like just go get yourself some CDX, lay it down on the joists, screw it to the joists. And you'd be fine doing that as far as I'd be concerned in terms of like, you know, you don't, you certainly don't need the reason that that whole attic isn't uh, sheeted over has more to do with somebody saving some money than it does with, I think uh, the, the breathability of the insulation. Okay. So I think you'd be fine doing something like that. And then if you wanted to build, you know, like a, a hip height knee wall and a wall that just comes up, you know, tall enough for you to be able to kind of hang tools on, you could also even build a slight, you know, a door into it if it came forward. So it could be a place where you store like a shop vac or you store some, maybe a larger piece of, uh, of tools or, or another toolbox. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think Carter's point about um, sort of figuring out an organizational system that works for you. Um, I'm still figuring that out. I feel like I'm consistently kind of struggling with that. <laughs> but um, but I think figuring out sort of a system of that, that that allows you to sort of know what's there and to feel comfortable in the space when you walk in and, and comfortable that you can go find whatever you need whenever you need it. So you're not sort of, you know, you can eliminate those challenges uh, that, that come up in a shop that's super unorganized where every time you walk in, you're looking for the tape measure or every time you look, walk in, you're looking for your combination square. If that stuff has a place to live, a, it'll encourage you to put it back there. And then B it'll just, you know, it'll feel so much better when you walk in and you just go, okay, I can start on this. I don't have to like spend half an hour cleaning or organizing or moving stuff around. Um, you know, I know that all my glue ups happen here. I know that all of my rip cuts happen here. I know that I can grab my, my miter sled off the wall to make my miters. And, and, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wow, this process, you know, I shaved an hour and a half off every frame that I'm making. Cause I'm not rearranging everything a different way every time I do it. Right. Right. And, you know, like the good thing about, uh, about the setup now, and, you know, I don't like have a whole lot of tools, um, so it's pretty easy to like find a specific spot for, you know, 
my one speed square, my <laughs> one tape measure. Um, but right. sure. the bad part about it is when you lose that one speed square, like no good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly you're investing half an hour in finding the thing that you are actually holding in your left hand. Yeah. A trip to the hardware store. Another one. <laughs> right. That's how someone ends up with seven cock guns, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, I, I didn't think you were allowed to have less than that, actually. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in terms of, of your heating situation, have you been there for a summer yet? I, I, so I moved in in the summer. And, okay. Um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty hot up there. <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably pretty toasty up there. And there's probably not a lot you're going to be able to do about that, Mm -hmm. except just like work shirtless. Uh, (laughs) um, But, you know, in terms of like a space heater, I would Mm -hmm. say that you'd probably be fine. You know, an oil-filled space heater or something like that would probably uh, help you out a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And and since there's no exposed flame or heating element, you're not risking any, any combustion that way. As long as you remember to turn it off and you know you don't let it get covered completely in dust and leave it on for days at a time um the other thing i would say too is that if you're going to be there for a couple of years you might spend a hundred bucks and just go buy some foam insulation and tack it up to your roof tack it up to your ceiling um that'll help to some degree too just to sort of keep the space allow the space to retain some of the heat that you generate in there both from a heater and then also just from being up there I, th- I think, you know, when I get close to some of the, so there's th- three windows upstairs and, you know, the closer I get to these windows, the colder it gets. Um, and I was, you know, throwing around the idea of like, do I just need to like cover this in like plastic or something and like staple it to yes. the side? Mm-hmm. Like w- would the a, like, would that work? <laughs> or- so 3M makes a product for that. Um, and it's a heat shrink film that you put some sticky stuff on all sides of the window, mm-hmm. throw the film over it and hit it with, hit it with your hair dryer, and it shrinks up tight and creates an air gap in there that really helps a lot. Uh, I grew up in a house that was built at the turn of the century and that was the winter ritual. Like every winter, get out the heat, you know, get out the, uh, the 3M shrink wrap and get out the hair dryers and, and go do every window in the house. Um, and it, it, it's, you'll be shocked at how, how much that helps with the draft there. Oh, okay, perfect. The other thing you'd be careful of is I imagine you're just using uh, typical wood glue. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, and I've been in this situation where you're, you're smothering your, your table, your project with moving blankets and you're heating it up underneath just to get the glue to cure. Uh, but the other thing to think about is the, the changes that are happening. You're going from warm enough to, to too cold and, and leaving your gallons of wood glue up there will, well, eventually go bad, you know, it'll start to separate and, and, and be expired, essentially. So I would think about, you know, if you have a storage, a storage that maintains some kind of uh, temperature would be would be helpful. Yeah. And, you know, that could be something as simple if, you know, as like, you know, hey, uh, <laughs> tell your partner that I'm sorry, but we're <laughs> sleeping with the wood glue for for the winter months. Um, or if she won't go for that, uh, you know, go buy yourself a styrofoam cooler and keep your wood glue in there because it'll at least maintain a constant temperature that's above freezing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'll help to insulate it. Um, that would be an option as well. But you could always just, you know, bring it down, keep it in the pantry. And you're probably, you may not even be buying gallons at this point of wood glue. You might still be sort of on the 16 ounce bottle uh, end of things. Um, so that could be, a, you know, a relatively easy thing to overcome. But I think it is something 
you know, not just wood glue, but obviously your wood's going to change a little bit <laughs> as yeah. the seasons do. So if you're buying lots of wood, I would say your goal in that space period, just based on the amount of space that you don't have. And then also given the temperature changes that that space is going to be subject to would be to keep as little stock on hand as you can. Just in terms of like, you know, if like there's moisture up there and and it could like warp or something, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, well, definitely moisture. And also, you know, when you shift temperatures dramatically, you actually, you, you create changes in humidity. Um, and that's going to affect, you'll see it in the wood if you leave some wood up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. gotcha. I, just to give you an idea, Andrew, I'll, whenever, if I go buy a piece of furniture and go to a lumber yard, mm-hmm. um, it's not uncommon that I personally don't have one, but it's not uncommon for furniture makers to have a moisture meter and just keep checking their, their material until it's down to a humidity level that's acceptable. Uh, I'll usually just take pieces of wood and, and bring them into my shop space and leave them for a couple of days before I start milling them up. You know, it's, it is a sensitive material, you know, it's, it's porous, it's, it's fibers that, you know, have grown by drinking moisture. So it it does react for sure. But in the, but would you say like it, it would be cool to like store stuff in this attic space or do I need to find like a closet or something? No, I think, I think storing, storing wood up there is, is fine. You know, it, it will fluctuate a little bit. Uh, given, given the fact that you're making frames and you're not making uh, chairs, so to speak, mm-hmm. I think that it's a, it's a less, it's a lesser concern. I'd say with larger material, you know, your bigger four foot, six foot frames, I'd be, it'd be more in the front of my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, it's something to think about and, and changing in temperature is definitely going to play a role. Uh, but for the most part, moisture, you know, keeping them indoors versus outdoors. That's a big, that's a big difference. Good to know. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about briefly um, is just your electrical situation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> about that. Um, and so it sounds like there's no electrical in that attic. Okay, so the other day I did make a discovery. Um, of <laughs> it is not an outlet, um, but it was like a box and had wires in it. Um, it all looks positive. Like, <laughs> it all looks, I'm not an electrician and I don't know anything about it, but my immediate thought when I looked at it, it was like, Oh, this looks like super sketchy. Um, it, the wires were like, I want to say like flailing. <laughs> um, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think when I, when I talk to other people, like when I talk to my brother or like my grandfather, like the idea of putting an outlet up there was like not far off for them. But for me, I'm like, I don't even know if I want to like approach this. Well, I, you know, that's one of those things that, um, you know, I think if your instinct is like, I don't want to approach this, Mm -hmm. that is what you should go with. Um, because if you don't feel comfortable with it, and I actually, I think it's even more dangerous when somebody super inexperienced feels comfortable doing electrical wiring. Um, because usually that's when you really run into problems. Um, but, it, you know, for the cost of an electrician to come in and wire an outlet into an existing box mm-hmm. and to verify that there's not too much other stuff on that circuit, 
it might be worth thinking about just for your own sort of convenience and peace of mind of not having to, you know, string electrical cords down the, down the stairs and into the main house. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's and, the current situation, <laughs> like multiple extension cords running, you know, totally across the attic, you know, down the stairs, you know, out the door into two separate rooms of the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think that, you know, it would be worth at least talking to an electrician and saying, hey, what would it cost me to do that? And I would guess that if there's some electrical running through that space right now, which there almost certainly is because it's an attic and that's kind of where that stuff tends to live. Um, getting someone to, you know, throw an outlet off a junction box up there safely, uh, you know, maybe 100, 150 bucks. Um, and it's the kind of thing that, um, unless your landlord's listening to this podcast, they'd never, they would never know. <laughs> right. Um, or particularly care, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's worth looking into, um, especially as you sort of, you know, if you're going to put any kind of dust collection, whether it's a shop back or otherwise up there, you're going to need some stuff to plug into and you want to make sure that it's on a circuit that's not overloaded and all the rest of that. Yeah, I mean, I have like a couple surge protectors up there, you know, and with each like <laughs> with each machine that I, I I get, I'm like, oh man, like, is this? Am I only going to be able to use like this one machine on this one surge protector? I don't want to like blow anything up. I don't want to start any fires or anything. Um, and again, like, I mean, the good news is that you're you're not running these things simultaneously for the most part, right, you know, right. and and that's really where you would run into issues. So. That may become an issue once you have a dust collection system of some sort up there, but you know, I don't anticipate you like you know, double fisting with the table saw and the and the chop saw. So, um, I think you'll be okay in that regard. Okay. Yeah, really, just trying to like not burn this house down. <laughs> that's a great. That's a great first first step. That's a good goal to have in mind, and it really you know it goes a long way in two regards, like uh, landlord references, which you may need someday, and, and also again, you know, keeping your partner happy. Yeah, um, that's just a that's a, it's a hard thing to spin positively once you've torched the house. So. I want to kind of wrap up here. I know we've probably could go on for quite a while, but um, we're approaching a 45 minute mark. Uh, So uh, I'd like to kind of take this opportunity to Andrew, starting with you to, if you've got any projects that you're working on that you'd like to kind of talk about, or if there's anything upcoming show wise, or if there's print stuff that you're working on that you want to plug, this would be a great place to do it. You know, I think like really the only, uh, the only plug, that I would like to talk about would pretty much be like this frame making. Um, you know, I've, I started doing it because, you know, getting your work framed is like stupid expensive. Um, and everywhere uh, that I looked like before I started making my own, it was, you know, you were breaking the bank uh, every single time to get a quality frame. Um, and, you know, during my time at uh, grad school, I, I think I, was able to make some, some quality frames. Um, and, you know, specifically for artists, for specifically for artists who are trying to like, you know, make their work presentable and, um, and nice and not have to spend $400 on it. Um, and I can, you know, I can make those frames now. Um, and I think with the help of, uh, of you two, I think it's, I think I'm gonna be able to make it uh, a lot better. 
very soon. <laughs> that sounds great. And um, do you have a, I don't think you do at this point, but are you planning on having any kind of a website or contact information for that? If someone were interested in, in looking at your services? Yeah, probably just like my uh, my email address, which is just my name, andrewrussbarger at gmail.com. Great, and I'll throw that in the show notes. Um, and Carter, what uh, what do you have cooking right now? Um, I have personally, I've been working on a series of uh, smaller projects, mostly carving. Uh, like I said, I've been changing, jumping around the academic setting uh, and changing shops. Uh, meanwhile, I've been staying busy carving smaller objects, in which I've been uh, sending out and showing. Uh, locally, I have a show opening February 6th right here in Aspen at Colorado Mountain College, uh, and I'll have a, a bench a bench in that show. Uh, I'm looking forward to that, but uh, otherwise, keep teaching and keep making. That sounds great. Well, I, I really appreciate having both of you guys on today. Um, it's been a, a real pleasure having this conversation, and I think it's been productive. Hopefully, Andrew, you've gotten some stuff out of it. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, what comes of that shop. I think setting up a new space is super intimidating, but also really exciting. So if you want to keep us posted, that'd be great. I'd love to be able to update uh, the listeners on what you've got going on and what that space ends up looking like. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for uh, both of y'all's feedback. It's, it's been really great. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. This has been Make This, Do That, a podcast about asking questions and solving problems. If you have a problem, a question, or a project that you'd like to discuss on Make This, Do That, email podcast at makethisdothat.org, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time.